Good evening and welcome to the German Historical Institute and to our summer 2016 series of seminars uh, here. I'm Andreas Gestrich, I'm the uh, director of the Institute. And for a number of years now, the German Historical Institute has put its summer seminars under a common topic. And this year's topic is uh, narrating the 19th century new approaches. Why did we choose this topic? Um, we think the 19th century is back, and is back in uh, at least on two levels, in historiography and also to a certain degree in our real-life world. As far as the second uh, our real-life world is concerned, political and social phenomena, which we associated primarily with the 19th century, seem to have returned to the post-Cold War world of the 21st century. I need only to mention the rise of ethnically oriented nationalisms or uh, on the level of uh, everyday working lives, for example, the increasing insecurity of work and labor relationships and the decline of trade unions, which in the late 19th century had initiated many developments which for a long time were taken as symbols of progress of modern democratic societies and which we seem to see in decline these days. These are just two uh, couple of examples and there are of course many differences which put the world of the 19th and 20th century light years apart and they should not be neglected. After all, the world has gone through two catastrophic world wars and many decades of a Cold War in the 20th century, which resulted in mental outlooks and political structures unknown to the 19th century. However, there are some things that uh, inspire historians uh, uh, to look afresh at the period uh, which they had visited uh, before. And if, and if so, how these developments are responsible for the fact that the 19th century seems to be back as an object histori of historiography could be discussed in the course of this lecture series. It is definitely interesting to note that after having been at the center of historiographic endeavors and innovations in the 1970s and 80s, academic interest in the, in the 19th century seemed to have dropped visibly after 1989, uh, and that not only in Germany but also elsewhere. In the 1970s and 1980s, working on the 19th century was very fashionable amongst historians, social history, or also the merging of social and cultural history as uh, in British Victorian studies, or completely different, uh, more sociological approaches as in the societal history of the Bielefeld School in Germany, uh, spearheaded a rethinking of the way we write history and they took primarily the 19th century as an example. The 1980s and 90s saw, of course, also the massive increase in studies on National Socialism, the Holocaust and the Second World War. However, after 1989, the focus of academic research into contemporary history shifted clearly towards the later 20th century, towards the GDR in the German case, the crisis of the 1970s and so on. In recent years, however, we can record a renewed interest in the 19th century. Why that is and how our perspective on the 19th century has changed is the topic of this summer's lecture series. Historiographically, one can certainly say that one of the new big challenges of rewriting the 19th century is uh, globalization, its growth and impact on the modern world, which is a perspective which wasn't at the center uh, in the 1970s and 80s. It is hardly possible to write modern national or European history just from a European perspective any longer. One of the great achievements of modern historiography on the 19th century is therefore Jürgen Osterhammel's magisterial work, The Transformation of the World, A Global History of the 19th Century. Um, probably no one writing on that period will, uh, will be able to ignore this book and the way uh, it will be included into writing European and national histories is interesting to see. We have for the summer lecture invited four eminent historians, two from Britain 
Richard Evans and David Cannondine, and two from Germany, Willibald Steinmetz and Johannes Palmann, to share their ideas on such problems with us uh, during this term. All four are in the process of writing or even publishing shortly a new history of the 19th century, either as part of a series on British or German national history or of European history. Our first speaker is Professor Sir Richard Evans, who has just completed a volume on the 19th century for the Penguin History of Europe, and it will be published in September under the title The Pursuit of Power, Europe 1815 to 1914, and it's just going into press these days. A very warm welcome to you, Richard, and thank you very much for contributing to our lecture series. It's really a great honor for us to have you here this evening. Even though uh, Professor Richard Evans does not really need to be introduced uh, to this audience, let me just say a few words on his main field of research and academic interest. Richard Evans is not only one of Britain's most distinguished historians, but also internationally one of the most important scholars of 19th and 20th century German history. He fundamentally influenced the innovation processes in the writing of 19th century social and cultural history since the 1970s, the processes which I mentioned before. Since the mid-19th century, um, mid-1970s, sorry, Richard Evans has continuously... <laughs> has continuously uh, been researching and writing on a wide spectrum of topics in German history and his books, which have been translated not only into German but also into about 20 other languages, had an enormous impact on many aspects of historiography on 19th and 20th century history. Uh, Rich Evans started with his academic career with, his book, with books on German uh, labor movement, on feminist movement, gender history, and edited very early also a very influential volume in the history of the family, of the family in Germany, which was then one of the new upcoming fields of social history. Uh, book titles like The Feminist Movement in Germany, 1894-1933, London 1976, or as an editor, Society and Politics in Wilhelmine, Germany, London 1978. He then published several monographs on topics such as social inequality and the social history of death and disease, taking particularly Hamburg as his prime object of study, but placing his example, of course, always in a much wider and more fundamental context. One of the really famous books is Death in Hamburg, Society and Politics in, in the Cholera Years, 1830 to 1910, um, Oxford, 1987, which also won the Boston Literary Award for History in 1988. Subsequently, Richard Evans worked on topics such as crime and punish punishment, especially the death penalty <coughs> in German history, and he took then a much wider approach, he took it from the 17th century to the 20th century. Tales, uh, Rituals of Retribution, Capital Punishment in Germany, 1700 to 1987. However, since the German historian's controversy, uh, uh, Richard Evans turned or became more increasingly more interested in uh, 20th century German history and also into its uh, theoretical dimensions um, and the theoretical dimensions of historiography in general. Uh, a very important aspect uh, of, these, of the further development was uh, that he was, in 2000, appointed principal expert witness in the David Irving uh, libel trial before the High Court in, in London. And I can really say I think uh, this was a great service to our profession that uh, this uh, trial went or had the results it had at the end. And academically, this intensive and detailed dealing with uh, NS history in the context of the Irving libel trials resulted then uh, subsequently in the widely acclaimed trilogy on the Third Reich, uh, three volumes, The Coming of the Third Reich, The Third Reich in Power, and The Third Reich at War. Uh, uh, these are, I don't know, translated into how many uh, languages and are a major contribution to the history uh, of 20th century, not only Germany, but of course in a much wider uh, context. 
His academic distinctions resulted in many honorable appointments, awards, and prizes um, for his books, as well as honorary titles and memberships in learned societies. I can't list them all, but I would like to mention and stress that he was appointed, Richard Evans was appointed Regius Professor of History at the University of Cambridge from 2008 until his retirement in 2014. And in 2012, um, uh, Sir Richard was appointed Knight Bachelor in the Queen's Birthday Honours List for servicing, services uh, to scholarship. I think that's a wonderful uh, um, uh, dedication of such an honourable title, and I wish there was anything like that in, in our <laughs> country. Not necessarily, not, not necessarily the knighthood, but uh, the appointment... Uh, but, but the appointment um, of or the recognition of um, scholarship in, in such a wide political context. And um, um, he was also appointed uh, president of Wolfson College in 2010 and is now still provost of Gresham College. And um, at that, I hand over to you. <laughs> And uh, thank you very much for coming. I'm looking forward to the lecture and the discussion afterwards. Right. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you very much for that very um, full uh, uh, introduction. I sometimes feel when I'm introduced by German professors that uh, uh, they say so much about my lecture, I, I should just pack up and go home and leave you <laughs> to discuss the, discuss the introduction. Um, very nice to hear a German advocating the return of the Ritterorden to, uh, to Germany. I'll, I'll wait with interest to see if you're going to succeed. Um, now, uh, you know uh, that uh, the old saying that um, British historians always begin a talk with a joke and German historians with an apology, but I'm going to reverse that today because I have to apologise. I have a, a terrible cold, so if I sort of cough and, cough and splutter my way through, uh, please, please, uh, I crave your, your indulgence. Uh, I also have to apologise for uh, upsetting Professor Gestrich's uh, historiographical apple cart because this project... Uh, of uh, the Penguin European History, in which I have the honour to um, contribute Volume 7, uh, actually originates in the early 1990s. Uh, amazingly enough, we all signed our contracts in 1994 or 1995. Um, and that, the origins are because Penguin published a famous series of uh, English history books back in the, in the 60s. Uh, with uh, some wonderful contributions, Bindorf on the Tudors, uh, for example, Plum on the 18th century. And in the beginning of the 1990s, David Canadine uh, proposed to Penguin that it was time for an update, another series of short uh, textbooks, non-footnoted, written for the general reader as well as for the student on British history this time. And um, to go along with it, then he said, why don't we do a European history as well? So they signed us all up to write these short, uh, short books. Uh, I agreed to do the 19th century. Uh, Ian Kershaw, the 20th, Tim Blanning, the 18th, Mark Greengrass, the sort of 16th, 17th, uh, Chris Wickham, the early, uh, early Middle Ages, and so on. And the whole thing was to be in, in eight volumes. Um, but then the history boom happened. Uh, just a few months later, uh, you couldn't suddenly turn on your TV set without seeing Simon Sharma or David Starkey or Neil Ferguson uh, or some other historian. A history was, as a BBC producer said, the new gardening. Uh, it was immensely popular. And uh, as Tim Blanning uh, said memorably in, in a discussion of his book, uh, when we signed the, uh, the contracts for these, th this series, it was on a very old-fashioned uh, kind of contract written on legal foolscap with handwritten emendations uh, for a very old-fashioned advance. And so uh, we were all signed up in the history boom, or most of us were, for much larger sums of money to do other things. Two of us by the same publisher, uh, Ian Kershaw's Hitler and my Third Reich books. So we put the European history on the back burner for a decade or so, at least a decade. And uh, when we finally got back to Penguin, to Simon Winder, the wonderful history editor at Penguin, uh, he said, great, great, fine. There's just one thing, he said. 
I know I asked you to do 120,000 words, but we discovered that blockbusters sell in history, so can you do 280,000 words? <laughs> and so uh, we, of course, all said, yes, if you give us a little bit more money, uh, which he did. It wasn't a lot, but it was enough to make us do it. And indeed, um, the, the, this, uh, of course, history gets, as it were, thicker towards the present. So Ian Kershaw has now persuaded Penguin to let him have two volumes of 500 pages each, uh, on the 20th century. Uh, mine will be about 850 pages. Um, the, the original manuscript was a bit longer, I sort of slim it down a bit. Um, so uh, the other thing that happened, as, as Professor Gestrich said, was the, the, uh, the, globalized, the global turn in history. And as I explained, uh, it's very fortunate that uh, I delayed writing this book for 10 or 15 years, because now I can take advantage of the global turn which simply wasn't really there when, when we all signed the contracts. Anyway, almost all the volumes are out now. Mine is the last one to appear, unless you count part two of Ian Kershaw's. Uh, and um, Anthony Grafton's Renaissance uh, is still awaiting. And poor old William Chester Jordan, the American historian, delivered to length and on time. So his slim volume now looks completely anomalous in this series of bulging, uh, bulging tones. So... Uh, when I was asked to do it, I, I spent most of my life avoiding teaching the French Revolution, so it's so complicated uh, and so difficult. And so I was asked to do the long 19th century from 1789 to 1914. Uh, and I said to Tim Blanning, who did the previous volume, said, come on, Tim, you, you know much more about the French Revolution than I do. You know, you're much more an expert. Can you do it? Can I start in 1815? So I said, yes, all right. You know, I think it's a bit flattered. But it's true, he does know more than I do. So his volume... Deep Seed Glory goes from 1648 to 1815. And I have the rather neat uh, century from 1815 to 1914. Now, as Tim Blanning says, every history of Europe has to start at some arbitrary date. But some dates are more arbitrary than others. And we speak habitually of the 19th century or the 20th century, but of course we all know the period 1801 to 1900 or 1901 to 2000 has no real meaning beyond the merely chronological. History is full of loose ends, and even the outbreak and conclusion of major wars that so often provide the terminal dates for histories covering discrete segments of the European past, including mine, of course, leave many, many issues unresolved. Different aspects of history have different chronologies. A date that has meaning in political or military or diplomatic history may have very little in social, economic or cultural, uh, or as feminist historians have passionately argued, women's history. French historians of the Annals School have become accustomed to speaking of an immobile history, the longue durée, which persisted well into modern times in many parts of Europe. So despite the fall of the Ancien Régime in political terms, the end of the 18th century, the Ancien Régime économique et social persisted well into the second half of the 19th century. It took until this point for serfdom, for example, to disappear from many parts of Europe. The long-established demographic patterns of high birth and high death rates didn't begin to change in most parts of Europe till after 1850. Just as industrialization was a marginal process confined to small pockets of the European economy till the second half of the 19th century. Now, some historians, notably Arno Mayer in his book The Persistence of the, of the Old Regime, uh, 1981, uh, have argued that the dominance of traditional aristocratic elites remained all the way up to the First World War, so not much of significant change in politics either. Mayer's view, I think it's fair to say, has not been widely accepted. Change there was in 19th century Europe, not just in politics, but in other spheres as well. Now, some uh, historians have decided that the most meaningful period to study is the Age of Revolution, to quote the title of the first volume of Eric Hobsbawm's celebrated survey of the years 1789, to 1848, published in 1962. Hobsbawm's periodization was followed by Jonathan Sperber in his very, uh, very excellent survey, Revolutionary Europe, published in 2000, covering the same period. There's a price to pay, I think, for choosing these years, because what came after was a very different Europe, one much less easy to conceptualize in a single framework, as after, after 1848. Not by chance, Sperber, uh, who's um, a uh, historian I greatly admire, to say, but his follow-up volume has a wordy title that conveys, no doubt unconsciously, the difficulty he found in solving the problem of finding a unifying theme. It's called 
Europe 1850 to 1914, Progress, Participation and Apprehension, published in 2008. Hobsbawm went on to write two more volumes, The Age of Capital, covering the years 1848-1875, and The Age of Empire, taking the story up to the First World War. Now, anyone who tries to write the history of 19th century Europe has to, I think, confront these three tremendous volumes, which I think tower over the literature uh, on the period. And with an uncanny gift for conceptual innovation, Hobsbawm went on to characterise the whole period covered by his trilogy as the long 19th century. And this is a model followed by many textbooks and primers. For example, Simpson and Jones's useful textbook, Europe 1783 to 1914. But the long 19th century, of course, if you take it as the kind of backbone of political history, is a broken back century. It's divided into two, it's a game of two halves, right? It's the first half of the 19th century and the, uh, up to 1848, and then, then the second half very different. So, like Sperber, many historians covering the period from the Battle of Waterloo to the outbreak of the First World War, or from the French Revolution to the uh, First World War, have given up on the attempt uh, to find any kind of conceptual unity chosen anodyne titles like uh, R.S. Alexander's Europe's Uncertain Path. He doesn't really say where it's from or where it's going to. Um, so now, through most of the 20th century, historians <coughs> regarded the rise of nation states and the conflicts between them as the central features of European history in the 19th century. The triumph of nationalism forged new political and cultural entities and inspired revolts against large, and it seemed outmoded multinational empires, revolts against oppression by subject nationalities or attempts, uh, ambitions to achieve dominance over them. This, this model of the nation state was exported across the globe in the 20th century, making its emergence in Europe in the 19th seem even more important. Historians once saw this process in positive terms, putting celebratory accounts of the unification of Italy and Germany, the growth of Czech, Polish national consciousness, other products of the age of nationalism, at the centre of their narrative. As national and ethnic rivalries spilled over into the huge conflict of the Second World War, the rise of nationalism appeared in a darker uh, light, a, a view underlined by the Balkan Wars of the 1990s again. Well, since then, I think we've come increasingly to live in an age of globalisation. As the barriers created by the Cold War have crumbled, international institutions, new global means of communication, multinational companies, many other influences have eroded national boundaries and begun to bind us all together as a global human community. And since the turn of the century at the latest, this has altered our vision of the past, which historians have come to see increasingly in a global perspective, as Professor Gestry remarked. Uh, so the call for the writing of global history is not in itself new. It was issued as long ago as the 1970s by the French historian Marc Ferraud, and was present in the concept of Universalgeschichte, universal history, as practiced by Ranke in the 19th century, or Toynbee and McNeil in the 20th. But a global history that linked the different parts of the world, rather than telling their discrete stories, it's most only recently, as historians have begun to examine subjects like the effects of empire on European economies, societies, cultures, and political systems, notably, but not exclusively, those of Britain, the global economic ties that bound Europe to other parts of the world in a nexus of mutual interaction. The rise of worldwide empire as a common European process rather than specific to any particular nation. Historians have also been busy rewriting the history of individual European nations in a global context, emphasizing the effects of European diasporas, the millions of Europeans who emigrated to other parts of the globe on the mother country, the infusion of European nationalism with elements of racial theory derived from the experience of colonization in Africa or Asia. The emergence of global geopolitics is a key factor in relations between European states. And indeed, I confess, a particular influence on my own approach has been exerted by Jürgen Osterhammel, whose transformation of the world is indeed a truly global history, not a Eurocentric one, as Hobsbawm's three volumes ultimately were. Covering the 19th century, his chapters deal with an amazing variety of topics, including memory, self-observation, time, space and mobility, living standards, cities, frontiers, power, revolution, state, energy, work, communications, hierarchies, knowledge, civilization, religion, and so on. And he deliberately picks out common themes, connections in different parts of the globe, shared developments and global processes. Yet his argumentative and effective presence 
the presence of the author throughout the book, generally, I feel, eclipses that of the people who lived the time he's writing about. Often, historical surveys spend all their time establishing the broad contours of interpretation without attempting to convey how they could be discerned in the lives and experiences of contemporaries. And that's perhaps understandable in a brief textbook whose ultimate purpose is to prepare students for examination. But more extensive work, such as Penguin, ultimately commissioned for me, uh, aimed in the first place at general reader, has fortunately the space to provide detail that conveys the flavour of the period and its mixture of strangeness and familiarity, and as far as possible to allow uh, contemporaries to speak for themselves rather than being ventriloquised by the historian. Uh, I once wrote a, a, a review of um, Nippedai's volumes on the, uh, on the 19th century Germany, uh, three marvellous volumes in which I complained. Not only were there no jokes in it, uh, which made it rather hard to read, but uh, also uh, constantly you just hear Nippedai's own voice. Contemporaries never got to, got to speak, and I'm trying to do that in this book myself, to allow, uh, to have many, many quotes uh, from contemporaries. Now, other no less ambitious works of global history written around the same time as Osterhammel's have offered a rather different approach to the 19th century, based on the perception that this is the period, above all uh, others, when Europe led the world and came to exercise dominion over other parts of the globe. Historians like the late lamented Chris Bailey in his The Making of the Modern World, 2004, and John Darwin in his Masterly Survey of Global Empires, after Tamerlane, 2007, have established with a wealth of comparative evidence the rough equality in almost every respect from living standards to cultural achievements for a whole range of civilizations across the world in the early modern period. The Mughal Empire in India, the Qing Empire in China, great pre-colonial empires of Benin and its neighbors in Africa, Ottoman Empire, other large states were roughly on a par with Europe in the mid-18th century in many respects. By 1815, this is clearly no longer the case. Europe had forged ahead, not, as some historians noted by Neil Ferguson in his book Civilization, 2011, has maintained because of its intrinsic superiority, but I think because of quite specific historical circumstances. Europe maintained and extended its advantage on many fronts right up to the early years of the 20th century, though towards the end of the period it came increasingly under attack. The First World War put it into question, the Second World War destroyed it bringing down the global European empires in its aftermath. And this global hegemony is, is an important justification for taking the years 1815 to 1914 as a distinct and meaningful period of European history. So uh, what I try to do is emphasize the global context uh, right, through, uh, right through the book, um, bringing events and processes in other continents into the narrative an analysis as a way of helping to try and explain what was happening in Europe. Now, global history also means, to use another fashionable term, transnational history. Many histories of Europe have consisted of largely separate narratives of different national histories. Uh, Grant and Temple's Europe in the 19th century, 1927, which held its own for a long time as a standard textbook, falls into this category. Simpson and Jones's Europe, 1783 to 1914, as I mentioned already, is in the same mould, with separate chapters on France, Germany, Italy, Russia, and Helsing Empire. The German historian Michel Selevsky's History of Europe from 2000 is subtitled States and Nations from the Ancient World to the Present and presents a series of disconnected histories of its individual nations and states and the relations between them. This means that the reader largely loses sight of what, if anything, bound Europe together as a whole, what these states and nations had in common, or what wider processes affected them. And the long-established and still incomplete Oxford history in modern Europe takes a similar approach with every volume devoted to a single country, except for the four that cover the relations between them over different periods. But as well as being an evolving assemblage of individual states, Europe uh, also had a definable existence as a collective entity, not as a geographical area, its eastern boundaries in particular are rather hard to define. Its confines became blurred in the course of European emigration to other parts of the world, but rather as a social, economic, political and cultural region sharing many common characteristics, a 
including uh, Russia, the Balkans in the East, Scandinavia, Spain and Portugal, and all of these countries' arguments have been put forward by historians for their exceptional nature. And of course, I am defiantly including Britain in uh, my history of Europe. Now, in taking an approach uh, that as far as possible is transnational, I am consciously following in the footsteps of Lord Acton, the founder of the Cambridge Modern History at the end of the 19th century. In his plan for this enterprise, Acton told his contributors, universal history is not the sum of all particular histories and ought to be contemplated first in its distinctive essence as Renaissance, Reformation, religious wars, absolute monarchy, revolution, etc. <clears throat> in several countries, he went on, may or may not contribute to feed the mainstream, but attention ought to be dispersed, ought not to be dispersed, by putting Portugal, Transylvania, Iceland, etc., side by side with France and Germany. My plan, he said, is to break through the mere juxtaposition of national histories and to take in, as far as may be, what is extraterritorial and universal. Well, in the event, of course, Acton died before he could realise this ambitious project. And when it was eventually published under the more efficient but less imaginative editorship of Sir Adolphus Ward, the Cambridge Modern History did indeed largely adopt the country-by-country -country approach, reflecting, I think, very much the nation-based vision of a younger generation of historians in the changed political and cultural atmosphere in the Europe they inhabited. It was only the fall of communism, the extension of the European Union to much of Eastern, Eastern Europe, and the renewed onward march of globalisation, that the possibility of writing a real European history re-emerged. You can't equate it anymore, however, with, uh, as Grant and Templey and their counterparts and, and many others uh, have done, with the history of politics and international relations. Since the 1970s, at the latest, historical investigation has expanded its field of vision so that it encompasses almost every aspect of human activity in the past. Already in the early 1960s, Hobsbawm's Age of Revolution, which drew, I think, on a French uh, tradition of, uh, of, of writing abroad, uh, comprehensive kind of history, uh, owed much to the Annals School, contained chapters on religion, ideology, science, the arts, economy, and much else. Subsequently, as Arthur Hamill's work has shown, uh, its uh, historical research has extended its range even further, including the history of the landscape and the environment. Hobsbawm was able to bind this all together, <coughs> above all, of course, in the Age of Revolution, uh, losing, gradually losing coherence as he wrote uh, further on into the century. But still, he was able to bind it together through an overarching master narrative that placed the development and determining influence of capitalism at its core. Uh, that's why it's a Eurocentric, his books are Eurocentric, because he's, he's the, about the impact, sort of, they're not global histories, they're about the impact of the Industrial Revolution, the French Revolution, the Dual Revolution on uh, Europe and then the world. Historians of the early 21st century, the time when the grand master narratives have fallen into disrepute, uh, don't have this luxury. The most we can do, as Tim Blanning says, is to trace lines of development. Now, two of the main lines uh, that uh, Blanning identifies for the years 1648 to 1815, uh, and, and I've tried to sort of try to pick up on his, his, his book and the points it makes, uh, what he calls the relentless march of the state to hegemony and the emergence of a new kind of cultural space in the public sphere. And he's continued through the 19th century. They achieved an expansion and dominance that was almost unthinkable in the previous age. State structures of Restoration Europe that um, emerged in 1815 would in some ways still have been familiar to the continent's inhabitants of the mid-18th century, even though appearances were often deceptive. The power and intrusiveness of the state were relatively limited still. Popular participation in politics was still minimal, despite the still vivid example of the French Revolution. Public sphere was still confined, mostly to a small stratum of the educated and the literate, and their institutions, from the periodicals to the coffee houses or the reading clubs. But by 1914, the state had been transformed. Universal male and some parts of the continent even female suffrage, and direct partic uh, participation in the, of the people, the masses, in the shaping of national, regional, local policy. 
not least through organised political parties. And a vast expansion in the control the state could exercise over its citizens in areas ranging from education to health, military service and social work. All of this by 1914. The linked processes of the improvement of communications and the growth of the economy, which Blanning describes, accelerated faster in the 19th century than anyone in the 18th could have imagined. In 1815, the railway, the telegraph, the steamship and the photograph were barely visible, if at all, over the historical horizon. By 1914, Europe was entering the age of the telephone, the motor car, the radio and the cinema. In 1815, we're still in the age of Newtonian, a Newtonian understanding of the universe, representational art, classical music. By 1914, Einstein had propounded his theory of relativity. Picasso had painted his cubist works. Schoenberg had composed his first eternal pieces. Europe, also in a more immediate, slightly more sinister sense, was entering the age of the machine gun, the tank, the submarine, barbed wire, a fighter plane. The first aerial bombardment of an enemy was recorded in 1911 during the Italian invasion of Libya. The first European concentration camps opened in South Africa by the British and in Southwest Africa and Namibia by the Germans. Such developments, foreshadowing the immense violence and destructiveness of the first half of the 20th century, stand as a warning against treating the 19th century, as most of its inhabitants treated it, as an age of linear progress and open-ended development. Progress had its price and in the succeeding period, between 1914 and 1949, as Ian Kershaw shows in To Hell and Back, the succeeding volume in the Penguin series, Europe Paid Us in Full Measure. Blanding's volume ends on a gloomy note as far as the conditions of life and the vast majority of Europeans uh, were concerned. The beginnings of industry, the effects of rapid population growth, bringing a new kind of poverty, he says, not a sudden affliction by famine, plague or war, but a permanent state of malnutrition and underemployment. The 19th century, as it suggests, was in fact relatively free of major European wars. Uh, the wars that did happen uh, before 1914 were all limited in time with distinct aims and confined to a small number of countries and usually to a relatively small area. With, uh, unlike those of the 20th or the 18th century. As in many other aspects of the period, the change relationship of Europe with the rest of the world was an important determining factor. So up until uh, the beginnings of the 20th century, uh, European wars did not uh, involve other parts of the globe as they had in the 18th century. Part of the reason for this, of course, was Britain's global hegemony, command of the seas, um, but also, I think, an uh, a enormous anxiety on the part of European states not to repeat the disastrous conflicts of the, of the 18th century and the French Revolutionary Napoleonic eras. Famines there were, notably in Ireland, Scandinavia and Russia. Plagues, too, in the form of periodic outbreaks of cholera that swept the continent. But these, too, were neither so frequent nor so devastating as plagues had been in previous eras. By the end of the century, they'd largely vanished from Europe. It didn't mean, of course, that social, economic, and other forms of inequality vanished along with them. It's an important part of what I want to do is to uh, describe the shifting contours of inequality in the 19th century, with older forms, such as serfdom on the land, indeed giving way to newer ones, such as wage labor in the factory. Uh, and here, I think, I, among um, many other areas, I take issue with uh, Hobsbawm, who sees the rise of industry as, uh, as um, uh, an unadulterated, unalloyed uh, descent into worse and f graver forms of oppression. I think it's important to see uh, that, uh, to look at uh, the 19th century in a broader uh, perspective. Uh, it was the age par excellence of emancipation, with millions of people, above all, of course, serfs, um, being given greater equality of status. Uh, women, uh, religious minorities, notably the Jews, uh, and these are enormous changes which should not be underestimated. But of course equality and emancipation are only ever partial and conditional, as the years of 19, after 1914 were to show. Arguments and disputes about inequality were at the centre of 19th century politics. 
building on the legacy of ideas bequeathed by the French Revolution, increasing numbers of political thinkers and actors began to conceive and implement ways of and means of overcoming the inequalities they witnessed. And the spectrum of solutions, of course, ranged from aristocratic paternalism, a sense of noblesse oblige, at one extreme, to the anarchist attempt to destroy the state at the other. Socialism, liberalism, communism, nationalism, many other doctrines prioritized one or another method of freeing people from the yoke of oppression and uh, exploitation according to how they define it. Those who put stability in hierarchy first recognized they could not survive simply by clinging to the old order, at least most of them did, and so they too became participants in the great debate on inequality. Religions offered a variety of answers to problems rooted in the temporal world or advocated escape from it altogether. And what uh, all of these many strands of thought had in common was a desire to acquire and wield power so they could put their ideas into action. So while Tim Blanning calls his history of Europe from 1648 to 1815 the pursuit of glory, signifying the priorities of the dominant political elites of the age, uh, I decided to give my book uh, the title The Pursuit of Power. So they go, I think, together in many, many respects. Uh, I think Ian Kershaw has chosen a very different approach for the 20th century, having a kind of central spine of political narrative. The pursuit of power, of course, is not simply political, at least if you think of politics in a narrow way. States grasped for world power. Governments reached out for imperial power. Armies built up their military power. Revolutionaries plotted to grab power. Political parties campaigned to come to power. Bankers and industrialists strove for economic power. Serfs and sharecroppers were gradually liberated from the arbitrary power exercised over them by landowning aristocrats. Central processes of the century, the emancipation of vast sections of the oppressed from the power of their oppressors, found uh, its most widespread uh, manifestation in the emancipation of women from their imprisonment in a nexus of laws, customs and conventions that subordinated them to the power of men. Just as feminists fought for equality before the law, so in the new world of industry, labor unions went on strike for more power over wages and conditions. Modernist artists challenged the power of the academies. Novelists organized their work around struggles of power within the family, the locality, or other social institutions. 19th century society increased its power over nature. Governments gained the power to avert or alleviate hunger and national, natural disasters such as fires and floods. Medical researchers reached out in the laboratories for power over disease. Engineers and planners extended humankind's power over nature. In a different sense, scientists and mechanics devised and exploited new sources of power from steam to electricity and the power loom to the internal combustion engine. Power could be formal or informal, could be exercised through violence or persuasion, could be consensual or majoritarian, it might take economic cultural or social or political or religious or organisational or many other forms, but as the 19th century progressed, people increasingly prioritised it over glory, honour, comparable values that had been dominant previously. By the end of the century, power is being reconceptualised in racial terms as Europeans came to regard their hegemony over much of the rest of the world as evidence of their superiority over, uh, over the rest of the world's inhabitants. And of course, in the end, uh, this, uh, this racialized form of nationalism came back to devastate Europe in the conflicts of the Balkan Wars and then the First World War. Well, uh, just briefly, how have I structured it? Structuring a book like this is always incredibly difficult. Um, it's taken me nearly eight years to, to write, and a lot of the problem, of course, is deciding what to put where and what order to put things. Uh, what to put in and what to leave out and so on. So I divide it into eight chapters, each of which is subdivided into ten sections, um, which, which gives me a kind of framework I can then slot things, slot things into. Uh, originally, of course, each section was going to be, uh, uh, be 3,500 words, uh, which tots up to 280,000, which is what Penguin wanted. But inevitably, of course, they all started growing and uh, I ended up about 4,000 words each, and the book's about 320,000 words. Um, so chapters 1, 3, 7, and 8 deal mainly with political history, and then 2, 4 with social and economic history, 5 and 6 with what you might call cultural history. So the first chapter takes the story of European politics from the final defeat of Napoleon to the last aftershocks of the 1830 revolutions. 
Then the third chapter takes the story up to the 1848 revolutions and follows their aftermath in the conflict-ridden and unstable years up to the early 1870s. The seventh chapter examines how European states from that then onwards to 1914 responded to the growing challenge of democracy. The eighth and final chapter turns to Europe's subjugation, however partially realised, of most other parts of the globe in the age of imperialism and its ultimately devastating effects on Europe itself with the coming of the First World War. Then between the first two of these chronologically defined political narratives, there's a chapter on the development of the European economy and society from 1815 to 1848. And then, of course, it starts to break down because in talking about the key change of the period, the emancipation of the serfs in many parts of Europe, um, you have to go on to 1861 in Russia and then on much further in other parts uh, all the way up to 1914 when uh, the serfdom in Bosnia still had not been abolished uh, as Gavrilo Princip pointed out and his trial was one of the reasons for his shooting the Archduke. The uh, fourth chapter deals with major structures of Europe's society and economy from the mid-century uh, onwards and the massive changes they underwent during these years. So what I basically do in the fourth chapter is I start with the aristocracy uh, and its decline and its merging into a new elite, move down through the middle classes, lower middle classes, the uh, working classes, urban and rural, and then down to the kind of substratum of what Louis Chevalier once called the dangerous classes, um, the, the very poor indeed, uh, and try and show how these changed and interacted with one another. Uh, and then chapter five ranges over the whole period in a discussion of society's attempt to impose order and control over nature, from the wild forests, rivers and mountains of the continent, the struggle for mastery uh, over disease and death, uh, and uh, over human nature and its many forms of expression, from the criminal to the um, sexual uh, to, uh, the, um, uh, to sanity and insanity. Uh, sixth chapter contrasts the century as an age of emotion with the age of reason that preceded it, dealing with the various manifestations of the human spirit, religion, belief, culture, education, the idea of humanity itself, that shared this characteristic. To underscore the human dimension of the history, which I, I, I think it's very important, particularly for a broad general readership, you have to give it some human interest. So I'm beginning each chapter with a life story of an individual whose beliefs and experiences raise many of the topics the chapter discusses. Each of the eight comes from a different country, and there are four men and four women. And I have to confess that it took me ages when I was trying to find the last one to find an interesting Scandinavian woman. Uh, but in, in, the end, in the end, I found a really good one, uh, uh, Frederica Bremer, who's now outside Sweden, completely forgotten. Uh, so forgotten that her novels, which were translated into English in the 1844, have never been reprinted. And I had to go to the rare books library to look up the original translations. But she, uh, her works um, combined all of sorts of the themes that I want to treat in that chapter, from women's emancipation to religion to emotion uh, to family relations uh, and, and culture and, and literature and many other, many other things. Um, now, I'm also trying, as far as I can, to give due account to women over half the population of Europe, of course, and the, uh, the peasantry, the people who lived and worked in the countryside. They often get pushed to the side and the margins in history of 19th century Europe because there's a temptation in writing about 19th century Europe to put at the centre of it the rise of industry, urbanisation, and somehow the peasantry and the people who live in the countryside get forgotten. So uh, I, I'm trying to overcome... Marx's baleful phrase, the idiocy of rural life, um, and, and just not to portray them just as the victims of historical change, but uh, people who participate in the making of their own lives. Uh, and finally, just to come back to sort of the, the transnational, national thing. Of course, in the end, you, you can't just write a transnational history. You have to deal with specific events like Greek independence in the, in the 1820s, um, or, or German unification. And, you know, there's a lot of points where you have to look at individual countries. But there again, I've tried to sort of show, uh, to, to sort of flag up uh, the interconnections with these, uh, with, with, um, with a more transnational European kind of history. So uh, reminding people that Capodistrius, the uh, intellectual leader of uh, Greek independence, was in fact a former 
Russian foreign minister, for example, not to mention the fact that lots of uh, Hellenophiles, uh, inspired by the Greek uh, struggle for, against the Ottomans, flocked to Turkey, Lord Byron at their head. Uh, and imagine, of course, they'd find noble, noble people uh, who look rather like the ancient Greeks, and finding instead there were bandits uh, and rather unkempt peasants, uh, and uh, rather, rather disappointed in them. Uh, again, in, the, in looking at the challenge of democracy, I think it's important to look at how the challenge of democracy was met, circumvented, conceded uh, in different ways, say from Russia to Britain, um, from Scandinavia down to, down to Portugal. So in the end, you have to make these compromises. Uh, and finally, of course, I will shut up now. Uh, finally, um, uh, of course, th a book like this has a number of different functions. And one should always remember part of the function is just to provide basic information for the students who want to, want to look it up, uh, as well as um, the main arguments, the main lines of development, and the human interest stuff. One of the things that Penguin insists on is don't spend ages writing about what Professor X says and what Professor Y says. Nobody's interested in that. Uh, you can put it in the footnotes, if you like. You can say, some people argue this, some people argue that. And then you can lead them on, because they don't have any footnotes. That's the problem. Um, it makes me, and Ian Kershaw and I had a discussion about this, it makes one feel slightly uneasy that one is plundering one's fellow historian's work without recognition. But that's the format. All I can do is to say, if anybody wants to know where I got the information from, please get in touch with me. Here's my email sort of thing. Uh, but on the other hand, it is tremendously liberating, I have to say. Uh, if I'd had to put footnotes in, the book would have been well over a thousand pages long, and it would have taken me uh, at least another three years to do. So that's the book. It comes out in, uh, on the 1st of September, uh, just about to be hit by the proofs, uh, which I've only got four weeks to do. Um, and uh, we're dealing with the illustrations at the moment. Jacket design is finished, uh, the blurb. Uh, it's all sort of slotting into place. And I do hope you'll all rush out and buy it. Thank you very much. <laughs>